Good morning, church. My name's John. I serve as one of the pastors here on staff. It's good to be with you this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, so we are going to jump right into the text this morning. I invite you to turn to Deuteronomy 12. We're going to cover the entirety of the chapter this morning. So, uh, like I said, we've got a little bit, of, little bit of work to do. If you're new here at GBC, we have been making our way through the book of Deuteronomy over the past, I don't know, six, eight months, seems like. Feels, feels long, right? We, uh, we went chapter by chapter, then we hit the Ten Commandments, then we did ten weeks in the Ten Commandments, and now we're picking things back up again, and we will be in chapter 12 this morning. Chapter 12 marks a change in the book of Deuteronomy and, and in what Moses has been doing up until this point. Deuteronomy 12 marks a change. Moses is now going to get into some of the nitty-gritty of the law. We've been uh, talking about up, to, up until this point, Moses has been kind of outlining the law for the people of God. He's been talking about the importance of the law and, and why they should follow it and, and some of the, the broader commands of the law. As the people are about to enter the promised land, Moses has this urgency and he, he delivers these several sermons about the law and about the importance of following God's command. And now, in chapter 12, he turns from some of those broader uh, brushstrokes about the law and, and some of the, the bigger concepts of the law, and he starts to get into the nitty-gritty. So buckle up, folks. This is, this is the kind of scripture that just engages you as you read it. That's, that's a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. <laughs> I'm trying. It's not the most engaging text. There's a lot of repetition in the text. There's a lot of detail in the text. But, as we've said from the very beginning, although Deuteronomy is not written to us, it's written what? It's written for us. And I believe this morning that even in some of this nitty-gritty, even in some of the detail of the text, that there are things that we can apply to our lives today— especially in the, the, our understanding and under the theme of worship. We're going to talk about a theology of worship this morning. So let's jump in. I'm going to read a few verses at a time, and then I'll talk about it, and then I'll read a few more and talk about it. We'll just kind of make our way through it this morning. Moses says, These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land, Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree, where the nations you are dispossessing worshipped their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in that way. So as Moses gets into the nitty-gritty of the law, it's interesting to point out that he starts with worship. He's going to start with worship, that worship and how the Israelites worship God in the midst of all the Canaanite gods and idols they're about to interact with is very, very important. We, we could make the argument that because Moses gets into this first, that Israel's understanding and Israel's worship of Yahweh 
is the most important thing that they get right as they enter the promised land. This is a critical piece, and and the Israelites are in a critical place. They've got to get this right. They've got to get worship right. They've got to have their hearts fully dedicated and, and fully given to the Lord because we know that their hearts are easily swayed. They're easily tempted to worship other gods, to be curious about other gods, to incorporate the worship of other gods in with their worship of Yahweh. This is the besetting sin of the Israelites. Perhaps it's the besetting sin of all humanity that we like to look at and think about and dabble with. Maybe not Canaanite gods, but all sorts of other idols and gods that could get our attention. And so Moses gives them some clear commands here. Some clear commands here that they are to just completely destroy the temples and the idols and the the stones and everything that has to do with worshiping Canaanite gods. When they they go into the land and they, they dispossess the people of the land, they take over the land and they drive them out and when they're, when they're standing there and they're, there's a temple that's left and there's idols that's left and there's these Asherah poles that are left, that they are to completely destroy everything. This would stand in stark contrast to what was typical in the ancient Near East at that time. If you were a nation and you conquered another nation, it was not the practice to completely destroy that temple and those gods. It would, be, it would be the practice to actually incorporate those gods into your worship, to gain what you could from those people, to be curious about what they were doing, and, and syncretize it with your own type of worship. But God's saying, no, don't, don't do that, Israel. Don't do that. It will not go well for you. You need to destroy completely everything that is about not worshiping Yahweh. God wants to make very clearly to Israel that he is their God and they are his people, and it's him alone that they are to worship. Let's keep moving. Deuteronomy 12, 5 through 14. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all the tribes, to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There, bring burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything that you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone doing as they see fit, since you have not reached the resting place and the inheritance of the Lord Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. This is the place the Lord your God will choose as his dwelling for his name. There you are to bring everything I command you, 
your bird offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. And there observe everything I command you. Here Moses introduces the idea of the place. This was a, the place where God will place his name. This, this holy place. The place, a, a centralized place of worship was to be where the Israelites where they came and they, they worshiped God and they offered sacrifices and they gave their offerings. This is in stark contrast to what the Canaanites were doing and even in stark contrast to what the Israelites had been doing up until the time that they came into the promised land. Moses says each doing their own thing. Apparently at that time there was some, some decentralized worship and sacrificing of God happening. But God says, when, when you enter the promised land, I'm going to choose a place. I'm going to choose it. I'm going to establish it. And there you are to go to worship me. The tabernacle, this place where the, the Lord has chosen to dwell and, and be among the people. It actually moved. It was at Mount Ebal, and then it went to Shechem, and then it went to Shiloh, and then eventually the tabernacle under David makes its way to Jerusalem. And then Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. This is the centralized place where the Hebrews are to go to worship Yahweh. Once they enter the land, God's going to choose a place, and that place is to be a place of, of rest, a place of worship. God says we're going to eat together and fellowship together, a place of rejoicing, a place of safety. It's here that Israel will do all the detailed steps of the law regarding sacrifices and offerings. All those details about the, the specific animals that they are to choose for, for specific sins or specific issues. All of that, all that's outlined in the book of Leviticus, the, the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. Le Leviticus gets a bad name sometimes because it's this weird, all this detailed law, but the first seven chapters of Leviticus are actually a worship manual for the, the nation of Israel. And in those first seven chapters, God outlines these, these beautiful offerings and sacrifices that the people can give in order to have fellowship with them. And what Moses is saying here is that, guys, once we enter the land, God's going to establish this place for us where we can have fellowship with him and, and we can do all these, these law, all the details of this law concerning animals and blood and sacrifices and offering, and we're going to have this rich fellowship with him in this place. It's going to be a place of, of rest with Yahweh, connection with him, intimacy with him. God is saying that they are to, to go to a place that he chooses in order to have this, this connection and this fellowship with him. One interesting thing to point out here 
is who God includes in that time of worship. It's interesting the detail that Moses gives, the the things that he outlines. He says, go to this place, and he says, bring your sons and your daughters, and your male and your female servants. And then he says, bring the Levites as well. Church, we're to take that as an understanding that this is not something that's just exclusive for one type of person or people. God is saying, bring everyone. Bring your entire household to the place. Your sons and your daughters, everybody that's in your family, and your servants, your male, those that you might think to exclude, include. Bring them into the fellowship. Bring them into this time of worship with me. And then he includes the Levites. The Levites the, the Levites were a, a tribe that was to be set apart where the priests would come from. Those who would, who would organize and lead the worship for the people. And they have no inheritance from God. And they were given no allotment of land. And so the Levites were this, this sort of unique group of people. It might be a stretch to say they were, they were marginalized. They weren't marginalized like the orphan and the widow and the foreigner, but they were strange. They were unique. They were different. They did not have all the things that the, the typical Israelite would have. And though all priests were Levites, not all Levites became priests. And so you had this group of people that were kind of strange and on the margins and a little bit unique. Sort of like when a a missionary comes home from a foreign land and is here for a little while. Where do they plug in? Who's responsible for them? And God is saying, don't forget the Levites. Don't forget those who are on the edge or on the outside. And bring them in as well. Include them in this time of worship. Let's continue on. Nevertheless, you may slaughter your animals in any of your towns and eat as much of the meat as you want, as if it were a gazelle or a deer, according to the blessing the Lord your God gives you. Both the ceremonial unclean and the clean may eat it, but you must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. You must not eat In your own towns, the tithe of your grain and the new wine and olive oil or the firstborn of your herds and flocks or whatever you have vowed to give or your freewill offerings or special gifts. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, your God, at the place the Lord God will choose. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants and the Levites from your town and you are to rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. Be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God has enlarged your territory as he promised you and you crave meat and say, I would like some meat, then you may eat as much of it as you want. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, you may slaughter animals from the herds and flocks the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you. And in your own towns, you may eat as much of it as you want. Eat them as you would the gazelle or the deer, both ceremonially unclean and clean may eat. But be sure you do not eat the blood, because the blood is the life. And you must not eat the life with the meat. 
You must not eat the blood poured out on the ground like water. Do not eat it so that you may, so it may go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But take your consecrated things and whatever you have vowed to give and go to the place the Lord will choose. Present your burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord your God, both the meat and the blood. The blood of your sacrifices must be poured beside the altar of the Lord your God, but you may eat the meat. It's a lot of detail, huh? What is going on about this eating all the meat you can handle? Seems a bit strange. For some of us, it sounds terrifying, horrible, and awful. For others of us, this sounds absolutely amazing. (laughs) What is Moses talking about here? Well, it's important to note that up to this point, the Israelites had been fed manna and quail. In the, in the wilderness, God had been providing that for them every day and caring for them. Any additional meat would have come from any hunting they would have done. Gazelle and deer, they're in this, this wild game category, and that's what the people had been surviving on. At this point in time, domesticated animals, sheep, goats, uh, cows, bulls, all those sorts of things, they were not a food source. For the people of Israel, they were designed to provide sacrifices, burnt offerings for the people to God. And the people were allowed to eat that meat only when they were made ceremonially clean and as a part of the offering process. Does that make sense? So they're caring for these animals and cleaning up after these animals and feeding these animals and only getting to eat them and enjoy them when they made an offering and they were made ceremonial unclean, ceremonial, ceremonially clean. But now Moses is opening things up a bit. He's saying that I know that you're, you're going to want to crave, you're going to crave meat, you're going to, to want to, to eat meat. And when we get into the land and the promised land, you're going to be all over the place. You guys are going to be spread out all over the place. And it may be days, weeks, walk to the holy place to make your offerings. And so he says, you can now eat these domesticated animals, even if you are not clean, even outside of the offering process, you can now enjoy meat. But God makes a special warning here. A special warning. He says, still, Preserve the first of your grain and the first of your oil and the firstborn of your flocks for the offering to the Lord. So he's saying that there will be a time when you're going to make your offerings and I want the best of what you have to bring. That throughout the the calendar year there will be different festivals and feasts and I'll require you to come to the central place of worship and I want the best of what you have to bring. I want the first of your grain and the first of your oil and the first of your flocks. So pre- preserve those things for the time of worship, but you can, you can enjoy the rest of your flocks when you get hungry. There's also a, a specific warning here, a, a special warning here about blood. About blood. Moses says, the blood is the life. Moses separates blood 
and meat, flesh and blood, are separated here by Moses. And what we're to learn from that, what we're to glean from that is that blood is unique. Blood is special. Blood has the life, Moses says. In God's economy, there's, there's something special, something unique, something powerful about blood, and it is to be treated with all seriousness. Blood is special. It has the life. There's, in the sacrificial system, uh, blood is shed and blood is poured on the altar and the Israelites are a part of this, this blood experience. And what they're to learn from that is that life matters. Uh, they're, they're having an experience where a life is given for their lives. This, this use of blood and this this incorporation of blood in the sacrificial system was embedding in the Israelite culture these concepts of, of mediation, something between them and God, blood mediating that relationship. But also it was, it was embedding the idea of a, of a substitutionary death for their atonement, that something must shed its blood, Blood must be given for them to be clean and atoned. Clearly, this, this paves the way for, for Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. All right, let's wrap up the chapter. Be careful to obey all these regulations I am giving you, so that it may always go well with you and your children after you, because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? We'll do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in that way, in their way, because you are, because in worshiping their gods, you do they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I am commanding you. Do not add to it or take away from it. Like bookends. Like bookends to the sermon, right? Moses hits hard at the beginning, do not mess with the Canaanite gods. Destroy them completely. And at the end, he reiterates it, saying, don't dabble with this stuff. Worship God and God alone. Don't be curious, Israel. It will not go well with you, and it will not go well with your children. And these people are detestable. If you follow this route, you'll be sacrificing your children on the altar. This is how serious Moses makes this. Do all these things so that it goes well for you. Don't remove any of these commands and don't add to any of these commands. In summary, if we were to, to summarize Deuteronomy 12, I would say that Moses is establishing, or maybe reestablishing, a theology of worship for the people of Israel. A theology 
of worship. A belief and a practice about worship as they enter the promised land. And Moses does this by contrasting the worship of Yahweh with the worship of the Canaanite gods. I'm not going to go over this in detail, but Jerry, go ahead and put that slide up. There's a table here. If we were to break down Deuteronomy 12, we can see that there's these the ways that the Canaanites worship and the ways that God is calling Yahweh, calling the Israelites to worship him, to worship Yahweh, and they are drastically different. Dramatically different. Using idols and icons, and God says no graven images. The Canaanites would abuse the poor and marginalized as a part of their worship. And God says, include them and let them be a part of the fellowship. The Canaanites would drink blood and sacrifice their children. And God says, have no part of that. Blood is sacred and to be honored. All right, so what do we make of Deuteronomy 12 today? What do we do with God's theology of worship in Deuteronomy 12 what do we do with this? How does it impact our theology of worship today? Does it have any merit? Is it Old Testament so we, we throw it out? And clearly no. Clearly we are not Israel. We are not entering a promised land where there are Canaanite gods. But clearly we are the people of God. This is the same God. This is Yahweh who we follow. This is, this is our God. And, and now we are his people. And so what is our theology of worship? What in Deuteronomy 12 matters? What matters for us today? I'm sure that you have many thoughts as we've gone through this together and maybe you've gleaned some things on your own which is awesome and and I don't have all the clear specific answers for us today but I do have some thoughts so let me share them with you this morning what matters what matters from Deuteronomy 12 for us today I would argue that a place still matters a place still matters. The Spirit of God does not dwell in any man-made structure any longer. It dwells inside of us through the Holy Spirit. So the need for a tabernacle or the need for a temple where we would enter to experience God is no longer needed. In fact, Jesus says in John 4 to the, to the Samaritan woman at the well that the temple where you worship no longer matters. I just want people to worship in spirit and in truth. So there is not one centralized place where the name of the Lord resides where we are to go to worship. But that doesn't mean that there is not a value in places of worship. Places where the people of God and the entire family and those marginalized can come and gather and sit and fellowship and sing and learn and grow. Place matters. 
and it must look exactly like this place. (laughs) Good, you're awake. Some of the most beautiful churches I've ever been a part of meet under a tree. Some of the most beautiful churches I've ever been a part of are, are underneath some kind of pavilion in the middle of a field. <laughs> some of the most beautiful churches in our country meet in a bar on Sunday morning because there's nobody there at that time and it's the only place in the community where they can worship. Church, it doesn't have to look like this. That, that's ridiculous. It could be a warehouse, a coffee shop, a bar, a tent, a basement where there's no windows in China so nobody finds you. Place matters. Gathering together matters. It still matters to God. The author of Hebrews commands the church, don't stop gathering together as some have done. It doesn't say make sure you get to an established church that's red brick and white pillars. But place matters. Finding a place and securing a place and establishing a place where people can come, I would argue, matters. The second thing I would say is being with others matters. Being with others matters. I hear from time to time, Well, I have the most powerful worship with God when I'm on the golf course. Or I have the most powerful times and experience worshiping God on Sunday morning when I skip church and I go on a long hike or a long bike ride or when I'm deer hunting in the woods or whatever it is. And I am glad that in spirit and in truth, you can worship and connect with God because he resides inside you in those moments. But do not forsake gathering together with other believers where you can sing together and preach to one another and and you can confess your sin and you can feel joy and you can rejoice together and you can sit under the teaching of God's word and you can apply it to your life and you can pray with each other and you can be prayed for by church leaders. Being together, including everyone. Moses says the Levites are included. Even the strange people are included. Those that aren't like us are included. We should take that away. We should, we should make that an application for us that, that gathering together and getting together and being together and including all sorts of different kinds of people matters. Third thing I would argue is that finding rest still matters. Coming into worship, coming into this place where we interact with and we fellowship with God in a powerful way and he meets us here, should be a place of true rest to our hearts and our souls. And we should feel in this place an immense amount of unconditional love and care. And we can come and and we could be so messed up and so broken and have had the worst week of our lives. And we can come in here and say, thank you for meeting me here, God. Thank you for being here, God. Places of worship with God, fellowship with God. He explains it in Deuteronomy 12 as this place of, of fellowship and rejoicing. And he calls it rest and safety. That's what we should experience on a Sunday morning. 
rest in the Lord today. I would offer that blood still matters. Blood still matters. Now, church, we don't enter into fellowship with God. We don't enter into relationship with God. We don't enter into worship with God through the blood of animals any longer. The the blood of an animal does not make us clean. Church, we enter and we have fellowship and relationship with God through the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that makes us truly clean and saves us. Trusting, believing in his blood, his death, to cleanse us from all of our sin. That's how we enter into relationship and we enter into fellowship with God. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, no longer the old way, a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that it is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled and cleansed from a guilty conscience, conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The author of Hebrews is telling us that the, the old way is not the way. The new way, the new covenant, the new way that we have fellowship with God is entering through the blood of Jesus. Blood still matters. Finally, I would offer this. God alone is all that matters. The worship of God alone is all that matters. Church, what what God was establishing here in Deuteronomy 12 in his talk about the destruction of the Canaanite gods and in his in his painting the picture of what worship should look like at his place uh, with his name on it, was an unapologetic command to the Israelites that you will not worship any other gods, that you cannot dabble with any other gods. It is about me and me alone. In fact, Israel, it's not about you at all. It's only about me. It's only about you coming to me at the place I choose under my name, following my laws and my commands. It's about me. It's about me, is what he's saying. And church, we can't miss that today. Our worship, the gathering of the people of God in this place, is absolutely, 100%, not about us. It's about God and God alone. One of my favorite Bible teachers of all time, Francis Chan, has a story about when he was pastoring a church and he's leading this church and these people came down after the service and they said, hey pastor, we need to let you know that we did not enjoy the worship songs today at all. And Chan responds to him, well good, because it wasn't for you. It wasn't for you. It was for God. The service was for God. And now, church, I get it. Songs matter. Styles matter. Sometimes our preferences matter. 
but we need to really battle hard and strong. We need to be resilient in the fight of the the creeping in of our hearts where we think that this experience is about us and our preferences and what we like and what we desire and what makes us feel great. And I, I get it. I get it that there are preferences, and I get it that we want to be wise and we want to choose things that help people engage and not be distracted. I, I get all of that. What I am talking about is that moment where the switch changes, the tipping point is, happens where in our hearts we start to consume this worship service instead of saying, God, this is all for you and only for you. Church, that was what God was teaching his people. That you're going to start to think that this is about something other than me, and you're going to want to engage with other gods, and you're going to want to do it your own way, in your own place. And church, we need to take that away, and we need to apply that to our lives today. That when we turn that corner, and we start trying to consume this worship service so that it meets our objectives and our preferences, man, we're in a tough spot. We're in a bad spot. We need to come in here with the mindset of, I am going to give everything to God. I'm going to worship him fully. I'm going to find rest and fellowship with him. I'm going to bring the best of what I can. The first thing on my heart. Let me pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for Deuteronomy 12. We thank you for this ancient word that brings us teaching and inspiration this morning. God, I pray as we sing these last two songs that we'll sing with a new fervor and a new passion to want to praise you and find deep fellowship, rest, joy, protection, and rejoicing with you. Amen.